Let's turn back over to John chapter 16. In case anyone was not here last night, I started ministering on the positive ministry of the Holy Spirit. And last night, I basically took four times that Jesus said in John 14, 15, and 16 that the Comforter would come. And I was talking about that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to build us up and encourage us and comfort us. I put that together with 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, where it says we have to assure our heart. And I was talking about that you just... We, we are fallen human beings. And even though our spirit has been born again, all of our flesh, our, our minds have been corrupted by wrong thinking and, and uh, a fallen human nature. Now that nature is gone, but it left behind an unrenewed mind. And it is just natural for us to experience doubt and to have negative feelings and things like this. And some people haven't figured all of this out. And so because they don't feel the love of God, they think that God doesn't love them and they pray and ask God to change their feelings. You need to get beyond that level and just get to a place to where you take the word of God and what it says is true. And if you don't feel right, well, then you change your feelings. You encourage yourself in the Lord. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to encourage us and to comfort us and to build us up. Also use Romans chapter eight, verse one, that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. God is never condemning you. This feeling of failure, this feeling of disapproval is never from God. God is not angry with you. Isaiah chapter 54, which if you are very good at math, Isaiah 54 follows Isaiah 53 which is the great chapter of Jesus becoming sin for us. And he bore our sorrows and carried our griefs. By his stripes were healed. And it just talks about he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And he did all of this. And then Isaiah chapter 54, it starts telling us the benefits of this. That those who were barren and unproductive can now sing and rejoice because you are going to be more fruitful than the married wife. You are going to be blessed. Your children will be taught of the Lord. And one of the benefits, it says that this covenant of my peace will never depart from you. I will never be angry with you nor rebuke you, says the Lord. Man, what a powerful thing. And yet the average Christian is constantly living as, oh, God has really been on my case. God has been showing me how I've messed up and I just... You know, the Lord has disproved with me. And this is the average Christian's experience when the Bible says that God is never wroth with you, nor will he ever rebuke you. And he likened it to the covenant that he made with Noah. He says, this is as the covenant, as the waters of Noah. For as I have sworn that I would never again destroy the earth with the flood, so have I sworn that I would never again be wroth with you, nor rebuke you. The significance of that is there's different types of covenants. But the covenant that he made with Noah was an unconditional covenant. He didn't say, now, if the world never provokes me again, if they never get back to living in sin, if they never reach this degree of corruption again, then I won't destroy the earth. No, he made an unconditional covenant. He says, regardless of what the world does, I will never destroy the earth with a flood again. And he says, this is that type of covenant. In the same way as I've sworn, 
unconditionally that I'll never destroy the earth with the flood. So have I sworn unconditionally that he would never be angry nor rebuke a single person who becomes a part of this new covenant. God is never angry at you. He never rebukes you. And yet the average Christian, that is not their experience. I bet you every person in here has heard somebody stand up in front of church and say, oh, I was doing something and the Holy Ghost just wouldn't give me any rest. The Holy Ghost was just old me and man, I was so convicted and I was so miserable and we blame the Holy Spirit for that. I bet you every person in here has prayed for someone else and said, get them Holy Spirit, just make them miserable. Man, I bet you've prayed that way. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the one who's the afflictor. He's the comforter. Somebody said, well, doesn't he convict us over sin? I'm glad you asked. Look at this in chapter 16. John chapter 16. And let's go back and read a verse that I read last night. In verse 7, Jesus is speaking. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. The word expedient means it's better for you. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And verse eight says, and when he is come, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And people say, well, see this right here says that the Holy Ghost does reprove you of sin. And so everything that you just said about him not being angry with you, nor rebuking you and not feeling displeasure or condemnation, this just totally violates all of that. You know, the Lord knew that we were fallen and that people would misinterpret this. So he explained it in the next verse. It's amazing how we just quit reading right there. Look at the next verse. In verse nine, here it is of sin. He, he listed three areas. The Lord would reprove the world. The Holy ghost would reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And here it is in verse nine of sin because they believe not on me. The Holy spirit convicts of one sin, not sins, plural. The Holy spirit convicts of one thing. And that is the sin of not believing on Jesus. That's it. People who aren't born again, it's not about whether you're drinking, whether you're carousing, whether you lie, whether you steal. You know, the only thing that sends a person to hell is the sin of rejecting Jesus. The sins of the entire world have been paid for. First John chapter two, verse two. It says that Jesus is the propitiation. The word propitiation means atoning sacrifice or payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of believers who he knew would accept him. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The sins of every person that have ever breathed on the face of the earth are paid for. The sins that haven't even been committed yet are paid for. Some of you think, oh, that can't be. How could God forgive a sin before you commit it? You better hope that he can because he only died for your sins one time 2,000 years ago. If he can't forgive sins before you commit them, you can't be forgiven. Jesus wiped out sin. The only sin that will send any person to hell is not homosexuality, adultery. 
It's the sin of not accepting Jesus. And that's all that the Holy Spirit does. He brings everybody back to what are you doing with Jesus? That's what it's all about. Now, if a person says, but I don't need Jesus. I'm holy enough. I'm good enough. Well, then the Holy Spirit will say, you think this is good enough? What about this adultery in your life? What about this lying? I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit's not aware of our actions, but it's not the adultery. It's not the lying. It's not the stealing. Those things have been paid for. He may try and reveal a person's need for God, for Jesus, through revealing to them the way that they've come short of the standard. But really those sins have been paid for. The issue is just whether or not you have made Jesus your Lord. And that's all it's about. And I believe that this is one area that the church has misrepresented God in is the fact that they're sitting there harping on, have you done this and this and this? When the issue is just, have you made Jesus your Lord? Have you committed your life to Jesus? And somebody says, well, I believe you're supposed to live holy. Well, I believe you are too, but I believe holiness comes as a byproduct of relationship with God, not a way to relationship with God. If a person truly encounters God and makes Jesus their Lord, God will change their life. The church is trying to clean the fish before you catch them. You catch them and then have a byproduct of relationship with God is when they start living a holy life. And so the Holy Spirit really just reveals and, and deals with this one sin of not believing on Jesus. And then after you get born again, after you're born again, did you know the Holy Spirit still does the same thing? For a Christian, all of your sins, past, present, and even sins that you haven't committed yet have already been forgiven. I could spend well over an hour teaching on that from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 9, verse 12, 15, all the rest of the ninth chapter. And then in the 10th chapter, verse 10 and 14 and uh, Hebrews 12, 23, all of those verses talk about you've been sanctified and perfected forever by one offering. Every time you sin, you do not lose your relationship with God. That sin is not a new transgression that hasn't been dealt with. And you got to get it under the blood before God can fellowship with you or answer your prayer. That's basically the mindset that most people have. And because of this, it keeps you continually sin conscious. It keeps you in a constant state of condemnation because you think that, uh, you know, I'm failing and coming short of God. And even though you might be able to get over committing adultery and being a uh, drunk or an alcoholic, things like this, did you know what? You are still going to fall short every day of your life. You're going to fail to love your mate the way that you should. You're going to fail to read and study the word as much as you should, to pray in tongues as much as you should. And as long as you feel that you've got to be doing all of these things and have everything in your life dealt with before you can have boldness and confidence in your relationship with God, you are never going to be bold and confident. You're always going to be coming short. And this is where the vast majority of Christians live in a constant state of unworthiness and failure. Maybe you aren't as bad as you used to be, but you're still pressing towards a goal and you haven't attained it yet. And until you get there, you just don't have any boldness and confidence. That is not the right attitude in the Christian life. And the Holy Spirit is sent to build you up and encourage you that God has already dealt with everything. 
So God has forgiven all of the Christian sin. You do not lose your right standing with God nor your fellowship with God when you sin. Now you may lose your fellowship, but if so, it's because you are the one that turned it off. You don't feel worthy and you just won't receive it. But God never withdraws from you because of sin. Man, I haven't got time to explain that any further, but that needs a lot more explanation. That is contrary to a lot of things. So how does the Holy Spirit deal with sin in the life of a believer? I believe it's very similar to the unbeliever that it's just one issue. Are you believing on Jesus? It's just the Holy Spirit will only deal with you over the issue of unbelief. That's it. And somebody says, well, it it doesn't matter then if I go and get drunk or get high on dope. No, because you know what that, you know what's wrong with that? You aren't trusting Jesus. Jesus wants to be everything for you. He created you so that you don't have to go get drunk or take dope or be addicted to pornography to satisfy some need on the inside. He wants to be everything for you. And if you are depending on alcohol, if you're going and taking dope, then you aren't trusting Jesus. You aren't believing on Him to supply those needs. You aren't letting Him build you up and encourage you. And instead, you're looking to some pill instead of the gospel. Amen. (laughs) You're supposed to be dependent. And so the Holy Spirit will minister to you. But see, it's a positive ministry instead of saying, you're a drunk. How could God love you? No, the Holy Spirit will come and say, why do you trust that bottle? Why do you let the spirits in that bottle satisfy your hunger instead of letting the Holy Spirit minister to you? Why don't you trust Jesus? See, and it's a positive ministry. It's all about bringing you back to relationship with God. It's never in a condemning, rejecting type of way. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a positive ministry and he just deals with one sin. Why aren't you trusting Jesus in this area? You know, if a person lies... You can sit there and here, here's the approach that the church takes often. And they say, if you lie, you're going to forget who you lied to, where you're going to get in trouble. You're going to wind up losing your job. You're going to be discredited. What about your reputation? And all of those things are true. And those are enough reasons in the natural to tell the truth. But see, those are external physical things. That's not the real issue. You know what the real issue with lying is? Why is it? That you can't trust God to take care of you. And so you have to tweak, change the truth, exaggerate it. Why is it that you have to inflate your importance and tell people that you're somebody that you aren't? It's because you don't trust in Jesus. It's because you really don't have a strong relationship with Jesus. You are dependent upon other people's approval. And so you're afraid that people won't love you and accept you the way you are. So you lie and misrepresent yourself and present yourself differently, trying to get a leg up, trying to manipulate people. It really, the bottom line just comes back to that you don't really trust Jesus. You don't see him as your source of your job. And so you got to misrepresent and inflate things and make it look better because that person that you are working for, you see him as your boss instead of God as being the real source. I think it's Psalms chapter 75, 76 says that promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west or from the south, but it's the Lord that sets up one and puts down another. The truth is it's God who prospers you. 
But if you're sitting there and misrepresenting and lying and doing things, you know what? It's because you're insecure and you don't have a good relationship with the Lord. If you were to examine every sin and if you just kept peeling back the layers and digging to the bottom of every sin, it really comes down to that you just aren't trusting Jesus. It's a sin of unbelief. That's, that's the root of everything. And many times we look at consequences and think, well, no, the thing that's wrong with homosexuality is that, man, you can get sexually transmitted diseases. You can get AIDS. You can do this. And, you know, the bottom line is God created us and he made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. He said that for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. This is what God says. And the bottom line, the thing that's wrong with homosexuality is you're saying God's wrong. And my own wisdom is superior. And you aren't trusting and believing in Jesus. The root of every sin is this thing of unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief. And even if somehow or another, you know, people say, don't go out and, and shoot up drugs because you can get diseases through shooting this up. You can destroy your health. It's going to be expensive. And we talk about consequences and all of those consequences exist. But that's not the reason. What would happen if they came up with a cure for all sexually transmitted diseases? What would happen if all of a sudden dope became free? What would happen if somehow or another they made it so that it wouldn't destroy your health? Does that mean that it's okay now? No, the problem is, see, you still aren't trusting the Lord to deal with your emotions and you're dealing with it in a carnal way when God wants to be the source of your life. And so the bottom line of every sin, the root of every sin is just that you aren't trusting in Jesus. Relationship with Jesus is the antidote to every sin, to every problem in your life. If you're worrying, what's wrong with worrying? The bottom line is that you aren't trusting in Jesus. Worry is an insult against the promises of God. It's blasphemy against God. God said he would take care of you. And if you're worrying and saying, how am I going to make it? The bottom line is you aren't believing on Jesus. You got a sin of unbelief in you. The bottom line with all sickness and disease, the doctor says you're going to die. The Bible says you shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And what's the problem is you just aren't able to trust in Jesus. You trust the doctor's word, the lawyer's word more than you trust Jesus. The bottom line of every sin is unbelief. And this is all that the Holy Spirit is dealing with. He is not condemning you about you drunk you failure, you beat this person again. How dare you do this? It's never rejection. It's no condemnation. It always comes back to you aren't trusting Jesus. You know why you're angry? Because you aren't trusting in Jesus. You know why you have this bitterness? You know why you worry over this? You know why you abuse this substance? You know why you're hooked on this? Everything just basic boils down to that you aren't trusting in Jesus. And that's all that the Holy Spirit will convict you over. And if a person sits there and says, no, I am trusting in Jesus. There's no fear in my life. Well, then the Holy Spirit may mention some individual sin that you're doing. Well, then why are you afraid to get in an airplane? Why are you afraid of heights? Why is it that you can't stand to be by yourself? Why is it that you can't go to sleep without a light on? He may point out something just to illustrate that, see, you do have this sin of unbelief. You aren't trusting the Lord in this area. But it's not these things that are the real issue. It's the root 
of not trusting in Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit reproves us of that, he always does it in a positive way. About why don't you trust me for this? It's not rejection because you've turned to this substance. It's why don't you trust me? Why don't you believe me? Why don't you let me supply your happiness and peace? Why is it that you are so dependent on going to a doctor and letting this doctor tell you everything? You know, I talked to people before and after the services and I am just shocked, shocked at how many people have things wrong with them. And I even wonder, how do you even find out that you have this wrong with you? (laughs) They don't feel anything. There's no symptoms, but a doctor told them this. You're going and paying somebody money to look for some kind of problem and find something wrong with you. I'm just amazed at the way people don't trust God. And they are so dependent upon a man telling them things. Anyway, I don't want to get off on that. But it just is amazing to me how little people trust God. They are so plugged into this world system that, man, they are doing everything the world is doing. And the Holy Spirit will reprove you of this. It's not the fact that you're doing this. or it's, Why aren't you trusting Jesus? Why don't you believe on Jesus? You know, let me use an example here that probably most of us can relate to. But if you've had children, you know, when your children become old enough to start driving... And you give them the car for the very first time. And you tell them to be home at 11 or whatever time. And then, you know, if you tell your kid to be home at 11, they'll be home at 11.05 or 11.10 or 11.15. They'll just push the envelope just as far as they can. And when they come in, you know, it's 11.05 and you said, I told you to be home at 11 o'clock and you didn't get here. They said, what is the big deal? Five minutes. And you know, the average person, the average parent will start saying, but you know, when it's late at night, when all the weirdos are out, what would have happened if you had run out of gas? What would have happened if you had had a flat tire? You could have gotten caught. Something could have happened to you. And you know, the kid is sitting there thinking to themselves, yeah, five minutes late and all of this bad stuff would have happened, you know, and they just sit there and they blow it off and think that this is irrational and stuff. But you know, you aren't really communicating what the problem is. It's not the fact that they were five minutes late or one minute late or whatever. It's the fact that I trusted you. I respected you. I honored you. It is not a part of your human bill of rights to go drive the family car and to stay out. I gave you a privilege. I honored you. I respected you. And I just asked you to be back by 11 and you didn't respect me. You didn't trust me. You didn't honor me. You didn't believe in me. I'm honoring you and you aren't honoring me. Seldom will parents communicate that. They'll talk about the consequences of what could have happened. But you know what the real deal is? It's the relation. I've honored you. You didn't honor me. And that's why it hurts a parent for the child to be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes late is because you're honoring them and they aren't honoring you. And see, this is the way it is with God. It's not all of the individual things that we do that's really the deal. Those are just symptoms that show us that there's a problem. But the real thing is, look what God has done for us. 
Man, the Lord, we were singing it this morning about amazing love. How can it be? Look at what God has done for us. In the scripture, Romans chapter eight, if God gave his only son for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jesus died to produce healing. He bore your sorrows, carried your grief, by his stripes you're healed. And yet we can't trust Jesus. We're trusting this pill. We're turning to anything and everything else except the Lord. And this is what grieves the Lord. It's not these actions so much. It's the bottom line of why aren't you trusting him? Why is it that you worry about everything? It's because you don't have a good enough relationship with God. You don't see him as a loving parent. And so you just live your life stressed out, trying to solve everything on your own, grieving over things that the Bible says he bore your sorrows and carried your grief. And yet you aren't letting Jesus supply your need. You're going to go through this in a human way and deal with it like an unbeliever deals with it. That's what grieves the Lord. God loves you. God wants relationship. Did you know this is why giving is so important? I don't know how many of you have thought about this. But, the, you know, the Lord could have supplied the need of ministers and churches in a different way. He could have, he could have made me so independently wealthy that I have a billion dollars in a bank somewhere and I just live off of the interest and I never receive an offering from anybody. God can do those kind of things. And I can guarantee you if that's the way that God set it up, I would have had it because I spent years praying that I'd never have to take up an offering because I'm not after your money. I'm after you. And people just get really offended over this. And I prayed for years that God had just make me so independently wealthy. I'd never have to receive an offering. And finally he showed me, but he doesn't want it that way. You spend more time making a living than you do anything else. You spend at least 40 hours a week. Some people a lot more than 40 hours a week. And the Lord doesn't want your life departmentalized to where you just have a Sunday relationship with God or a devotional relationship where you give God 30 minutes a day and then the rest of the day you're mean as a snake and just carnal and doing your own thing. But there's 30 minutes a day that you're sweet and loving and you're praying and seeking God. He wants, to, he wants to flow through you all of the time. And you spend more time in the natural world making money than you do anything else. How is it that God gets you to see him as your source? That he's the one that promotes you. It doesn't matter what the U.S. economy does. God is your source. God is the one that sets up one and puts down another. How is it that you trust God in this area? See, it all comes back to relationship. God wants you to trust him. He wants to be involved in everything that's going on in your life. So how is it that he gets you involved in finances? The way you do it is that he says, give me 10% and offerings. And if there was no God who promised that when you give, it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, shall he give into your bosom. Then it would be stupid to take a portion of the hard work money that you've earned and give it away. You're moving away from your goals instead of towards them. It defies logic. It's counterintuitively. This is wrong concerning the natural realm. Why would anybody take a portion of the money that they worked so hard and give it away? There is no reason other than the fact that God says, if you give, I will give unto you. So it's a statement of faith. It gets you out of seeing yourself as I'm the one that earned this money. You may have worked 
But you know what? It's God that caused you to get that money. It's God that caused you to be born during the most prosperous time in the history of the world. In one of the most prosperous nations that has ever existed on the face of the earth. You didn't cause yourself to be born here. You didn't do anything. You have natural talents and abilities. Some of you are an administrator. Some of you just are leaders. Some of you have talents like an artist or you have skill sets to uh, do different things. And you may develop them, but you can't bring out what God didn't put in. There's some of you that just have natural talents and abilities and stuff. God gave them to you. And yeah, you may be working, but you couldn't do what you're doing if God hadn't given you those abilities and those talents. All God would have to do is just swirl the chemicals in your brain just a little bit. And you could be licking your stamps off the drool dripping off your tin. You didn't give yourself this health. You didn't give yourself the brain capacity. Whether you realize it or not, God is your source and God has blessed you. And so how is it that he gets you to see that he's your source? He says, give me 10%. Not because he needs your money. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to believe on him. That's what giving is all about. And the person who says, oh, I want to give, but I honestly, I just can't afford to do it. I need everything. You can, you can explain it. You can justify it a million ways. But the bottom line is you do not believe the promise of God. That if you give, it'll be given unto you. If you really believe that, You know, if I had unlimited resources and if I could guarantee you that today, if you come up here and give $10, I'll guarantee you $100. If you give $100, I'll guarantee you $1,000. If you give $1,000, I'll guarantee you $10,000. If I had the wherewithal to be able to do that, you would be absolutely foolish, stupid not to come and give money. Even if you didn't have it on you. Punch your neighbor and say, give me 10 and I'll pay you back 20 and you'll still be 80 ahead. (laughs) If you really believe that, I don't care whether you had it with you, you'd use a credit card, you'd charge it and you'd pay it off later. If you really believed me, even if you were in financial strait, if you didn't have money to get home, you would go ahead and give because that is such a good deal Why would you turn it down? That's only a tenfold increase. The Lord promised a hundredfold increase in this life. So the bottom line is people that say, oh, I want to give, but I just can't give. You can justify it. You can talk about the economy. You can say I'm on welfare. You can say I've lost my job. You can say anything you want to, but the bottom line is you do not believe the promise of God or you would do what he told you to do. Thank you for that thunderous silence. So see, it's not the Holy Spirit saying, you aren't tithing. God's angry at you. That's not true. The the Lord will convict you and say, look, I love you. I'm the one who gave you everything. Why don't you trust me? Why don't you believe me? Oh, I want to trust you. I want to believe you. I just can't. The Holy Spirit will keep working on you and saying, no, you really don't believe. If you really believed, you would start trusting me. You would prove me. 
And see, that's the way that the Holy Spirit convicts. It's a positive ministry. It's a ministry of love, drawing you into relationship with God. It's not a negative, condemning ministry. There is no condemnation. You know, when I deal with people, I often will counsel people and I have, the Lord shows me things that I need to tell them, but I try and couch it in a way that, look, I'm going to say something that might offend you, but I love you. And I'm saying this because it's the truth. It's the truth that sets you free. And I may tell a person something that is not necessarily good, but it's because I love them. And if I can actually get that point across, and if they can know that I'm saying this because I actually love them and want to help them, people will let you say anything to them as long as they know that you're doing it to help them and it's not selfish and you aren't trying to tear them down. I've done this thousands and thousands of times. And see, the Holy Spirit is always out to help you. And if you could understand this, that He is not the condemner, He's the comforter. There is no condemnation. He's not trying to nail you over. You aren't a giver. You don't tithe. I'm not going to bless you. The curse is coming upon you. And people will quote Malachi chapter 3, and they conveniently leave out that you're cursed if you don't pay tithes and offerings. It's not just 10%. And if you add up all the offerings, that's at least 33%. If you're going to live under Malachi 3, 8, then you have to give a minimum of 33%. The Bible says in the New Testament, Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We aren't under that curse. God's not mad at you and saying, I'm on your case. You're cursed with the curse if you don't die. That is not the new covenant ministration. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, In verse 7, every man should give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God does not want you getting out of debt, obligation, so that you can redeem yourself from the curse. Jesus redeemed you from the curse. You're supposed to give cheerfully, and the Holy Spirit is not going to sit there and say, I'm angry at you because you've done this. You've robbed from me. That's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will just come and say, why don't you trust Jesus? The same God who promised that if you would confess him with your mouth as Lord, you'll be born again. The same God promised if you give, it'll be given unto you. How can you say that you trust him and yet don't trust this small thing in the area of finance? He'll always minister to you in a way that builds you up and shows you your worth and value and that God wants you and loves you. It's not a negative ministry of condemnation. Did you know even under the old covenant, it was like this. Now there was wrath and punishment under the old covenant, but you can still see grace. Look at these passages over in uh, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12, I believe it is. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he lusted after her, had sexual relationships. She got pregnant. And in an effort to try and hide his sin, he tried to get her husband to come home from the war and go in and have a relationship with his wife. And therefore, they could claim that the baby was theirs. And yet Uriah was a man of integrity and wouldn't do those kind of things. And so David had him killed. Put him in a hot spot in the battle and told Joab, the general, to withdraw from him and got Bathsheba's husband killed. And then after he was dead, he took Bathsheba to be his wife and the baby was born. And uh, boy, I wish I had time to deal with this whole thing. You need to really study this. Second Samuel chapter 
12 is where the prophet Nathan came and rebuked David for what he did. And the way he did it was by giving a parable. And he said, there was a rich man who had all of these cattle and flocks of sheep and everything. And he had all of this abundance. And next door to him lived a very poor man. This poor man didn't have anything but one little lamb. And he raised it in his own bosom, bottle fed it. It was like a child to him. And a man came to visit the rich man. And rather than the rich man taking his own animal and killing it and feeding his guest, he went over and stole his neighbor's little lamb and killed it to offer to his guest. And when David heard this, he got so irate. He said, the man that has done this thing is going to restore fourfold what he stole and it will cost him his life. I'll put him to death for this. And you know, this is andeology. I'm reading between the lines. But I believe that the reason God did it this way, the Bible says God will have mercy. I mean, judgment without mercy on those who have shown no mercy. You know what I believe he was doing? He was letting David decide his own judgment. He gave him a story that was the, the transgression in this case was much less than what David did. And he was just going to see how David would respond to it. And he let David write his own sentence. And when David rose up and said, he'll pay four times and he will die because of what he's done. David passed judgment on himself. And when he stood up and got so irate, Nathan looked at him and he says, you are the man. Man, I'd love to have been there to see David. When he's in rage, his juggler veins are sticking out. He's red in the face, screaming and yelling. He's so mad because somebody did this small injustice compared to what he did. And then the prophet goes, you are the man. Wouldn't it have been something to see the transformation and how he responded? And look at what the Lord spoke to David through Nathan the prophet. In verse 8, he says, I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. You know, the Lord said in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, he says that he only intended one woman for one man. God never approved of polygamy. He allowed it because of the hardness of people's hearts, but it was not his will. So the Lord never willed for us to have multiple wives. And yet the Lord said, I gave you the wives of Saul. I gave you multiple wives. David had, I think, 13 wives. And he says, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Even though it wasn't his will, I would have given you more if you would have asked me. The thing that really got God wasn't so much what David did. It was about his personal relationship with David. David, you didn't trust me. At one time, you were small and little and you had to trust me. But then you became the ruler of the nation and now you can do anything. And so you just go take another man's wife and kill him. And the thing that really grieved the Lord was this personal relationship. David, you didn't trust me. I would have given you more if if what I'd given you wasn't enough. Why aren't you trusting me? I don't know if you can see that or not, but that is so powerful. See, if you are just trying to serve standards, rules, regulations, they're always going to fail you. I remember speaking at a school in Kansas City one time, 500 member church school. 
And they had me as the guest speaker. And while I was waiting, they gave me a pamphlet about the school. And on the front page, it was positive peer pressure is how they advertised this Christian school. And they were really bragging about the effect of positive peer pressure. And boy, as I looked at that, the Lord just spoke to me and he says, that is absolutely the wrong motivation. And some people might think, well, isn't that good? No, it's still peer pressure. What happens when they graduate from that Christian school? And like me, I got put into the army and I got shipped overseas. And did you know, when I was in Vietnam, I am the only person in my company, 200 people in my company that when they had stand down, they brought you to the rear area, gave you all of the booze that you could drink free of charge. And they brought in prostitutes and you had free sex for three days, all of the booze and free sex that you could have for three days. And I, out of my company, I am the only person that did not participate. One of the guys in my company I went to school with, he was in my Sunday school class. We had been friends since we were little kids. He would have never have done this back in the States. But on the other side of the world, peer pressure, he just went along with it and did what everybody else did. That's the wrong motivation. And there's a lot of people that serve God because of situational ethics. Because what would my family think? What would happen if I get caught doing this? Sure, those things are consequences and things to consider, but that's still the wrong reason. The real reason to serve God is because of your relationship with God. How is this going to affect God? Look at how good God has been to you. And I can personally tell you that when I was in Vietnam, I had just fallen in love with the Lord. Man, I was so excited about God. That with, there, there were all these temptations and stuff coming at me and it just boiled down to how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's what uh, Joseph said in, in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph, Joseph was treated bad by his brothers, sold into slavery, was in a terrible place. He was sold to the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife wanted to commit adultery with him. She was the wife of the master. Who was going to tell on her? If she would have told on him, her neck would have been on the line. You know what? He could have gotten by with it. He was on the other side of the world nearly. He was in a different nation. His family would have never known about it. If it's just situational ethics, there's a lot of people that cave because the consequences are removed and it looks like you can get by with it. But Joseph said, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It was personal relationship with God that kept him holy. And because of it, God blessed him. I can tell you, when I was in Vietnam, nobody would have known what I did. You know, let me just say something. This may not be true with everybody, but a lot of what they're calling post-traumatic stress. I'm not saying that this is true of everybody, but you know what a lot of it is? People in war situations live like animals. They do things, not only sexually and immorally, but I mean they do things in war that they would never have done. And a lot of what we call post-traumatic stress is a person's conscience smiting them and they just are so guilt-ridden over the fact that they lived like an animal and they put it off to the fact that they've experienced war and all this stuff. But a lot of it just has to do with the guilt and the condemnation of their own conscience. And there's a lot of that, and it's just disguised under a different name. 
But I can guarantee you, when I had all of the restraints removed from me, I still lived totally because I had a relationship with God. And this is what the Lord is saying to David right here. He says, David, look at what I've done. You know, David was the youngest son of Jesse. And Samuel, in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, came to Jesse's home to select the king. He told him that one of your sons is going to be the next king. And Jesse didn't even think enough of David to put his name in the hat. He left him out taking care of the sheep. He was the run of the litter. Nobody would expect Jesse, I mean David, to be the next king. And so he didn't even bring him in. He brought his six brothers in. And Samuel looked at them and yet he says, it's none of these. He says, are these all of your children? And he says, well, the youngest is out there taking care of the sheep. And he says, nobody's going to sit down until you bring him in. And you know what? They didn't call him on the cell phone. He didn't jump in the, on the motorcycle and come in. It took 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 minutes to go get him one way and then back. And Samuel wouldn't let anybody sit down because they were honoring the one that the father didn't honor, didn't think that he had a chance of even being elected. And yet God honored David over all of his brethren and wouldn't let anybody sit down until he came in. And then he anointed him to be king. And David became a mighty man and conquered all of his enemies and was blessed and the kingdom was united. And God did all of these things. And, he, and you know what really bothered God was not the fact that he committed adultery with Bathsheba, even though that's bad. Not the fact that he killed Uriah. That's not what he really rebuked him over. He says, David, how could you have done this to me? You used to be dependent upon me. But now you're so powerful and influential, you can do whatever you want to. And you aren't believing on me anymore. That's exactly what he's saying right here. In the ninth verse, he says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. This is what the Lord's saying. David, you despise me. You, you went against all of my instructions, against all of my commands. You don't, you don't trust me anymore. You don't believe me. It was what hurt him. It would be similar to a husband and wife. Again, if all you're using is consequences to hold you and make you do the right thing, then what would happen if uh, you know, a woman went out and committed adultery, but she didn't get pregnant? She didn't get any sexually transmitted disease. Nobody was ever going to find out about it. Does that make it okay because the consequences aren't there? If the husband knew about it, whether, the, whether there was a child to be born, whether it caused any sexual transmitted diseases, whether there was any physical consequences, the husband would be heartbroken because the wife didn't love him, didn't trust him. That's the issue. And this is, God is all about relationship. God loves you. The Holy Spirit is not here saying, you sorry thing, you committed adultery. You don't tithe. You lied. You misrepresented. See, most of us have attributed this to the Holy Spirit and the guilt and the condemnation, the feeling of disapproval. We've thought that this is the Holy Ghost on our case. It's not. It's our own conscience that is smiting us and 
and, and causing this condemnation. And religion has perverted our conscience. But the Holy Spirit is only reproving of one sin. And that's the sin of not believing on Jesus. And he'll come and he says, why don't you trust him? God loves you. God wants to be your source. Trust him in this area of finances. Man, don't go out and commit adultery. God said, be ravished always with your own wife. Why would you go steal water? It says stolen waters are sweet, but that's a lie. It's a deception. God knows what makes you happy. Having one partner is going to satisfy you more than having multiple sexual things, regardless of what's presented on television, regardless of what's in movies. You need to trust God. You need to believe His values more than other people's value. You need to not lean under your own understanding. See, it all comes down to this personal relationship with the Lord. And this is what the Holy Spirit's conviction is all about. He's never rejecting you, condemning you. He's always drawing you closer into relationship with God, to dependent upon Him. You know, I just know in my heart that there's people sitting in this auditorium that, man, you've got things in your life that are out of order and you aren't doing things right. And you've lived with a sense of guilt and condemnation and you've sinned. And yet once you get that sense of guilt and condemnation, it seems to just push you further in that direction. You get this attitude of, well, I'm a failure. I just can't help it. And you just give token resistance. And after a while you give in because after all, that's who you are. You're just an old drunk. That's what I disagree with things like AA. I believe that AA has helped a lot of people. I believe that there are people that have been set free, but I disagree with the fact that they stand up and say, my name's Andrew Womack. I've been a drunk for 30 years and I've been sober for two years. That's wrong. You may have been a drunk for 30 years, but now you've been born again and you are changed and you are no longer that person. You don't identify with that. You see yourself as I'm a new creature. And they don't take that step and go into that part of it. And they get up and every time re-identify themselves with all this failure. And so because of it, they only give token resistance. And after a while, if the pressure gets hard enough, well, then you know what? They give in because after all, that's who I am. But no, you can get a new attitude and you can begin to see that, man, I'm changed. God loves me. God loves me. Man, the Lord is passionate about me. He carries my picture in his wallet. He's got an eight by 10 of me on his mantle. God brags about me. God loves me. How could I not do what God wants me to do? How could I not honor someone who has given their life for me? How could I give in to my feelings and emotions and let my hormones take control? Man, how could I do something like that to a person who literally gave everything for me? See, when you put it into relationship and take it out of the realm of rules and regulations and make it personal, it changes the whole Christian life. Some people struggle with this next statement I'm about to make. You need to listen real good, man. But I commit all of the adultery I want to commit. I rob and steal all I want to, but I don't want to. I have a relationship with God. God has changed my heart. And because of that relationship, I don't have to sit there and with white knuckles hold on and say, Oh, Jesus, please help me not to commit adultery today. I want to so bad, but I'm resisting the flesh. No, you get into relationship with God and you'll find out that, man, it just is your nature to love God. 
But there are many of you that are serving God out of debt and obligation. And you're, it's, you're, you're, the scripture says in Psalms, I believe chapter 32, don't be like a horse or a mule whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle lest they come near unto you. But you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk thou in it. In other words, don't use physical restraints. Don't wait until you're punished. Don't wait until you're facing disaster. And if you don't do the right thing, you're going to be held accountable here. You're going to be embarrassed. And so you do the right thing because of what it's going to cost you. Don't be like an animal that has no understanding and you have to use some physical punishment to restrain them. Man, you need to have a relationship with God and let the ministry of the Holy Spirit on the inside establish so much relationship that you wind up serving God because you love Him. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 is the most information in one place that we have in the Bible about money. All of chapter 8, all of chapter 9 is about money and serving God and giving cheerfully, not grudgingly or of necessity, etc. It's all about money. And he ends it up in the last verse of chapter 9, I believe it's verse 15, by saying, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. And you know what that does? That shows you the motivation why you give. He gave for us. He's done so much for us. How could I not give back my finances to Him? He that gave His life for me and spared me from hell and did all of this for me, how could I not give my finances? Man, if you have to sit there and condemn people, there's people that are saying, if you don't tithe, God will take it out in doctor bills. I was brought up in a church that taught that. And you tithe or either God will put you in the hospital and take that money from you in doctor bills. He'll make your car break down. He'll make your washing machine break down. He's going to get his 10% one way or the other. And you know what? People will start forking it over. Paying hush money. It's like they're serving, they're serving the Godfather instead of God the Father. Amen. You got to pay your indulgence. You got to pay him off. Oh God, keep off my case. I paid 10%. That's the way that most churches collect. But on the other hand, if you could tell people and if you could ever get them into relationship and let them see how much Jesus loves them and what he's done for them, people would wind up giving up bubble gum if they thought that would please God. They'll give everything. I've literally had a man get born again and give me his two week paycheck. Just sign it over to me. And we had to go to him the next day and say, look, you know, God just asked for a portion. You don't have to give everything. And we gave him his money back told him, you don't have to give everything. But that's when people fall in love with God, that's what they want to do. Man, they just want to give God everything that they've got. You'll serve God more accidentally motivated by love than you ever have on purpose, motivated by debt and fear and condemnation. And yet most people are motivating themselves through condemnation. They will sit there and they, they've embraced this condemnation, this feeling of unworthiness and failure and think that it's actually positive and it motivates me. That's not the, you know, the scripture says fear has torment. 1 John four eighteen, 
fear has torment. And if you're motivating yourself by fear, that fear, if I don't do this, God won't bless me. God won't prosper me. I'm going to be exposed. I'm going to suffer. Fear has torment. And most people are tormented in their relationship with God. But perfect love cast out fear. And the Holy Spirit will motivate you to do the right thing through love, not through fear of punishment and rejection. When I preach that all of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, some people just hit the roof and get really mad at me because they say, well, you're just taking all the restrictions off of people and they're going to go live in sin. That's because they have a mindset that it's only fear of punishment that keeps people going straight. They don't relate to God based on love. But I'm telling you, once you fall in love with God, you don't have to condemn a person. You know, I love the Lord. I appreciate what he's done in my life. God has been awesome to me. And man, if I ever thought that I did something that didn't honor God and dishonored God, man, that would break my heart. Not through fear of punishment because somebody comes on my case. It's because I love God and I want to honor God. And once you establish this relationship, and it's all about relationship, then the Holy Spirit just comes and when he speaks to me, he says, Andrew, he says, you didn't trust Jesus in this. You aren't believing him. All he ever deals with me about is just whether I'm believing him or not. It's all about relationship with him. And it's positive. It's not negative. Man, I got a lot more to share about that, but I can't, the heart can't absorb more than the seat can endure. (laughs) So we're going to pick up right here. I don't ever finish. I just quit. And then we'll pick up again tonight. And so keep right where we are and we're going to start on this again this evening. And I tell you, if you can understand this, you can start having a relationship with God where he is your best friend. God is your coach. God is in your corner. God is always encouraging you and telling you that you can do it. He's never the one who's condemning you. One of the reasons that people don't seek the Lord more is because... They have this wrong impression of God. They think that God is showing you everything that you're doing wrong. And just constantly, every thought, every feeling, every emotion, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Why would, you know, none of you would want to hold, hang out with me if I was just around you. And every time you did anything wrong, I said, don't say that. You shouldn't have done this. If I just pointed out everything that you did wrong. I guarantee you, you would not want me to be around. And especially if I could get on the inside of you and actually hear your thoughts. And every time you think something wrong, I go to rebuking you and say, you shouldn't think that. You shouldn't have lusted. You shouldn't have done this. And see, this is the way that we think the Holy Spirit is. And we wonder why it is that it's so hard for us to spend time with him. It's because of the attitude that we have about him, the perception of him. He's not like that. You know, the Super Bowl's coming up in a short period of time. And many of you, man, you just excited about the Super Bowl. But what if they came on with every commercial? Instead of these commercials, you know, Super Bowls where they show some of their favorite commercials and they do these real funny things and people like the commercials. What if they came on during every commercial and said, you sorry thing, why aren't you praying? <laughs> Have you studied the word today? Is there somebody that you could be helping? 
Do you realize that during the Super Bowl, there's going to be so many thousands of people die and go into a crisis eternity and you're wasting this time? And what if every commercial came to you and started pointing out something, how you could have used your time better. And if every commercial that came on and did that, at the very least, you would start bleeping out the commercials or probably you would lose your desire to watch the Super Bowl if you were constantly criticized and told how wrong you were for doing it. And yet when you enter into prayer, this is the first thing, oh God, we're so unworthy. And you start mentioning all of your sins and recounting every rotten thought and you just start backpedaling and bringing up every bit of scum that's in your life. And then wonder why is it that I find it so hard to spend time with God? It's because of your religious mindset that thinks that the Holy Spirit, you better mention every sin that you can think of before God does. Amen. No wonder you don't enjoy the presence of the Lord more than that. That's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've blamed the Holy Spirit for our own conscience and our own guilt-ridden conscience. You know, let me say this one last thing. I quit with this, maybe. <laughs> but I was raised in religion. And I was raised that if you smoke a cigarette, you go directly to hell. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. And when I was six, seven, eight years old, I used to have dreams. I mean, every, at least twice a year, I would have dreams that I smoked a cigarette. I got caught and they turned me into the police and the police turned me over to my mother and I wound up in hell, burning in hell because I'd smoked a cigarette. And because of that, I've never smoked a cigarette in all my 61 years. But it was because of, and I used to be tormented over it. In the Baptist church, if you drank a beer, you went directly to hell. There was no such thing as doing anything in moderation. And because of it, I've never tasted liquor. I've never had a beer in all my 61 years. I've never touched it. But you know what? My conscience, sure, it's good not to be drunk. But the scripture doesn't say you can't drink a beer or drink one thing. I'm not encouraging anybody to do that, by the way. I'm just saying that my conscience condemned me so badly. And I remember being over in Austria and I was preaching and there was about 150 people there sitting at round tables, 10 people to a table. And as long as I preached, they served them as much free beer as they could drink. And it's one of the few times nobody cared how long I went. They didn't care how long I preached. And that beer was just flowing. Man, everybody in there was getting tipsy. That was hard on this Baptist boy to be preaching. But you know what? In Austria, man, they drink like fish. Nothing wrong with drink, but if you smoke a cigarette, you go directly to hell. And then I crossed the border over into Romania and you could not drink. If a Christian drank, you went straight to hell. But they smoked constantly. And my brain was trying to adjust to all of this and thinking, what happened from this border to that border? And I began to realize that, you know what? A lot of my values were just religious. There may have been a core truth, but my conscience smote me so bad. And it was not the Holy Spirit. I used to see profanity scribbled in stalls in restrooms or in concrete. 
And because I had seen the word that somebody else wrote, I spent two weeks repenting and asking God to forgive me for even having the thought come through my mind. I know some of you are thinking, boy, you were really messed up. And I was. That's what religion will do to you. And there are some of you that you are just absolutely convinced it's the Holy Ghost who's got his thumb on you. And that's the reason you're miserable is because God's so disapproving of you. That's not the Holy Spirit. It's your own conscience and religion and other things can amplify it and make you guilty of things that you aren't even guilty of. I was taught that if you danced, you went straight to hell. And one night, one night in my life, I skipped a Wednesday night church service and went over to my girlfriend's house. And when I got there, there was other couples there and they were dancing. And they tried to teach me how to dance. And I tried for about five or 10 minutes and I got so smitten. I called my brother and had him come pick me up. And I was at that Wednesday night service before they said, amen. I didn't even miss the whole thing. I thought I was going to hell for being in a place where they were dancing. You know what? That wasn't the Holy Ghost. That was my own conscience smiting me. And there are many of you that you sit there and laugh at me. And I guarantee you, you live a life of guilt and condemnation that is so far removed from God. God is not the one who's beating you up. He's the comforter. He's there to help you, not to hurt you. And you need to renew your mind. Amen. Amen. Is there anybody here today who's not born again? Or if you've already been born again, if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit.